Right, thanks so much, and thanks, Mark, for the introduction. What I want to do is build on the work that, that Richard has, has shown and really explore what the consequences of these sorts of projections are for the impacts of climate change across the global domain. And I'm going to be presenting some preliminary results um, from the Quest GSI project, which I'll explain a bit more at the moment. And there's a, a massive cast of people who've contributed in various ways to, to material here. Um, Richard's introduced what a four-degree world might look like, um, and he's emphasised that what that world looks like depends very much on how the climate responds. You've got different regional patterns of change, um, in different changes in different areas. The different climate models make different projections of change. But we can see how a four-degree rise is perfectly feasible. The impacts of climate change depend not just on how climate changes at that four-degree level, what the regional patterns are, but also on what the state of society is at the time. So the impacts are very much determined by the climate and the society that's there to be impacted. Uh, and it's actually obviously, it's obviously very difficult to predict both of those things. Richard talked about the challenges in um, predicting future climate. We can think straight away of the challenges of predicting the state of the world. So what I want to do is produce a story of what the world might be like in 2080. This is not a forecast, so that's the, the, a big caveat and health warning. This is not a prediction of what will happen. It's a description of a plausible future of what could happen. And, as a boundary condition, I've assumed population and economies follow an A1B pathway, which Richard's just about mentioned, and I'm going to concentrate on 2080, saying, what happens if we get four degrees in 2080? And in order to minimise the variation due to uncertainty about climate change, I'm going to assume for the moment that HADCM3 is, gives a good description of truth, and the climate follows a HADCM3-like trajectory. Um, these are similar sort of graphs and maps to the ones that um, Richard showed earlier on. The key points being that a four degree world does not produce a four degree increase in temperature everywhere, and in fact over land mostly produces a considerably greater increase in temperature. And there's considerable regional variation in the rainfall change, and many impacts are driven by rainfall change rather than temperature change. Not all, but many. So we've got strong regional variability. Uh, and here, for the sake of um, summary, are the projections that I've used to characterise population and GDP. Um, the B1 world is the one actually where population peaks at about 2060 or so, and then begins to decline. Um, that's A1, B1 is the same population. And an A1 um, GDP actually is the, is the most wealthy world. It, by 2080, it's of the order of 10 or 12 times the current GDP. That's not too important. It's just to emphasise that we've had to define a particular fixed point against which to define and characterise impacts. We'll come back to the implications of different stories later on. So, as I say, the work I'm talking about is a snapshot of bits of the NERC Quest GSI project. Um, a whole range of partners involved, some of whom are in the room. Um, a series of logos there. The key points about this project is that we're seeking to address impacts across a range of sectors and across the global domain, and we're seeking to use a consistent set of climate and socioeconomic scenarios. Easier said than done, but we've managed to pin down a set of consistent climate projections and socioeconomic projections, and to allow us to make comparisons and look at the interactions between different sectors. We've explored a range of sectors, and I'm not going to look at the results for all of them here today by any means. I'm just going to concentrate on these ones, although 
I'm not going to talk about coastal flooding because Sandy Brown has got an excellent poster which we'll be looking at later on. Um, and these aren't necessarily the, the most important and worrying things. Um, John Chalnuba talked about the potential risk of tipping points in, in the climate system. We don't consider those at all in our Quest GSI project. We're just looking at what happens if we get a gradual progressive increase, uh, change in, in climate associated with particular in, um, rates of uh, emission change and so on. So we're not looking at what happens if you suddenly get something weird happening, a tipping point. Okay, so let's zoom into some of these sectors, starting off with water resources. That's the hydrological change associated with HADCM3. And what we've done to produce our consistent climate scenarios is basically force all the climate models to hit a particular global temperature change. So that's what we're doing just to standardise here. So this is HADCM3 forced, well the data, not the model, data forced to go through a four degree global average. Uh, and this is the change in runoff that we project under this particular climate scenario. And we can see really quite substantial changes in runoff, that's the red bits, which, are, which map closely onto the areas where there's a reduction in rainfall, but larger parts of the world show a reduction in runoff than show a reduction in rainfall, because the extra temperatures generate higher evaporation and all sorts and may offset relatively small increases in rainfall. So the, the global picture is of a bigger relative de decrease in runoff than change in rainfall. But we can see a broad geographic variation there. And what we've also done is then characterise a range of indicators of um, in various human aspects of water resources related to this change in resource availability. And I'm just going to summarise this by one figure, actually two, one's a regional version, uh, one particular indicator. And what we've looked at here is the indicator defining the population who live in watersheds that are already currently water stressed where things get worse. There's a particular sort of techie definition to this, essentially watersheds with less than a thousand cubic meters per person per year where runoff declines significantly, significantly being greater than year, decade, decadal variability. And what this shows is in, in 2080, assuming climate follows the HADCM3 type pattern, a four degree increase in temperature by 2080. Notice this is above 61 to 90. We, we're being rather liberal with our definition of baselines um, throughout the, the next couple of days. It doesn't matter too much at the minute, but remember that different baselines give different answers. Four degree increase above 61 to 90 of the order of 14% of the world's population would be adversely affected by climate change. In other words, they'd be living in watersheds that are already water stressed where climate change makes things worse. This is not population growth. We're holding that constant here. This is the world in 2080. Climate change makes things worse for about 14% of the global population. Um, oh, hang on, back a bit. Two degrees is about 8%. At this scale, it's, it's not a linear relationship, but it's relatively smooth. This is um, the same sort of diagram, but this time we break it down by region, just to give some idea that the, the massive regional variation in this the black line is the global average again. Um, four degree change gives an impact, an adverse impact of zero in some regions or 75% of population affected in other regions. Um, and we can see some suggestions that are beginning to be some steps and thresholds there of particularly dramatic changes as temperature goes up at 2080. Okay, so that's an indicator of water resources stress. We can also characterise relatively straightforward indicators of exposure to flood risk, or in this particular case, flood hazard. 
And what we've done here is calculate the proportion of flood-prone population where their exposure to flooding increases substantially or decreases substantially. Um, the solid line is those uh, with an increase in exposure to the flood hazard. The dotted line is the proportion of population, flood-exposed population, where climate change leads to a decrease in exposure. Effectively, the, the, the black line here is the parts of the world where what was the 20-year flood is now the 10-year flood, so it happens twice as frequently, and the dotted bit is where what was the 20-year flood becomes the 30-year flood, so it becomes 50% less frequent. And what we can see is with an increase in 2080 of temperature of 4 degrees, of the order of half the world's exposed population, exposed to the flood hazard, sees their exposure uh, lead to an, a, a doubling of, uh, of risk, of hazard. So, substantial change. Okay, uh, a quick snapshot of some ecosystem productivity changes. This maps on to some of the work that, that Richard was talking about earlier on. This is work from Chris Huntingford at CH. Um, using that same climate projection, and what we can see here is the uh, change in the percentage um, coverage of different biomes. So, the one on the top left is uh, broadleaf trees, um, the one on the top right is needleleaf trees. Red means a decrease in the coverage of that biome, green means an increase, and we see substantial loss of the Amazon rainforest. That's a key impact under this four degree projection. Uh, and um, the high latitude where we see the, um, the boreal trees moving northwards, um, grassland, however broadly defined in the um, high latitudes, um, decreasing and shrubs taking over as well. So substantial shifts in ecosystem characteristics associated with a four degree change. The key one arguably being the Amazon rainforest shift. Next group of indicators look at crop productivity and generally suitability of land for, for agriculture. And, and what I've done here is calculated an index um, based on some work from Raman Kuti et al, who constructed an index of suitability of land for production of, uh, for cultivation, uh, based on climate and soil characteristics. You change the climatic characteristics that go into that calculation and you can get some idea of the potential change in suitability of land for agriculture. Um, in this particular case, again, at, uh, this is a change under four degrees, um, double change under two degrees. The red shows the proportion of area that's currently suitable um, that declines in suitability or becomes unsuitable. So about 15 or so percent of the currently suitable land becomes unsuitable for agriculture at four degrees. And this is essentially in dry parts of the world. Um, but globally, about 20% or so becomes suitable for agriculture, which wasn't before. Now that tends to be in the cold bits of the world. Essentially, it's the shift of crop suitability, notionally, northwards. So we've got big geographic variability in where these things occur. So if we zoom in on, on Af uh, southern and eastern Africa, four degrees, zero improvement in area suitable for crop cultivation, but maybe a 40% decrease in the area suitable for cultivation. Now that doesn't necessarily translate into impacts because this is area suitable for cultivation, not area cultivated. And it may be that the areas that change are at the margins and aren't cultivated anyway. So the next stage in the work is to try and map this onto areas that are currently um, cultivated to see if the, the, the statistics change dramatically. But the impression we can get is of quite substantial changes in suitability for agriculture, big regional shifts. Uh, zooming in on one particular crop, this is soybean. 
This is a simulation from Tom Osborne and Tim Wheeler at Reading, uh, showing the change in yield per square per, per hectare of, um, of soybean uh, and with a four degree rise in temperature and the Hadzian 3 pattern. Uh, the blue bits are the bits where yield goes down. The red and yellow bits are the bits where yield goes up. Uh, there are one or two of them uh, as areas become suitable for production, which weren't before, but the overwhelming picture is a reduction in, in this particular case of this particular um, uh, product soybean of 30-40% um, in, in most of the regions where it's currently grown uh, associated with a four degree rise in temperature. And that's taken into account an increase in CO2 concentration at that time. So it's not just a temperature effect, it's a CO2 effect too. Um, let's look at one particular built environment indicator. Um, the indicator we've chosen here, just as an example of what could happen in, in these sort of places, is heating and cooling degree days as an index of the re energy requirements for heating and cooling buildings. Uh, it's population weighted and what this diagram shows is in 2080 as we get different increases in temperature how does heating requirement change or cooling requirement change we find globally of the order of a 50% reduction in um, heating requirements as the world gets warmer but of the order of a doubling of cooling requirements as the world gets warmer. Um, with strong regional variations in these, um, in these relationships. But it gives some idea of the order of magnitude of the requirements for heating and cooling energy. It doesn't necessarily map onto you know, megawatts because it depends on how uh, the technologies and the efficiencies with which that heating and cooling is provided, but it's an indicator of the demand for that um, heating and cooling requirement. Okay, so I've looked at a snapshot of a range of indicators for a world that's four degrees, trying to hold as much as, um, constant as feasible, the same climate pattern, the same socioeconomics. So the sort of headline indicative in numbers are of the order of 15% of the world's population, about a billion people, exposed to increased water stress, about half of flood-prone people exposed to increased flood hazard, about 15% of the world's dryish land that's currently suitable for cultivation becomes unsuitable, using that relatively straightforward index, but an extra 20% becomes suitable in cold northern places. Um, cooling requirements double, heating requirements halve. But that's a global picture. It's a massive regional variation, and this again to emphasise is the, uh, the regional relationship between forcing and impact in water resources and um, crop suitability in southern and eastern Africa. Quite a lot of geographic variability in impact. But that was one story. Um, different climate models, different climate projections give us different uh, numbers associated with that story. And just to illustrate how the, the numbers are very much influenced by what the climate actually does, still hitting a four degree target, well target's not the right word, hitting a four degree figure, but in a different way, um, then we see, this is the, the, the flood figure again, um, the black line is the one we saw earlier on, had CM3, which gave us about a 50% of the flood-prone population exposed to increased flood hazard. Under these semi-randomly selected four climate models, then that range may be between 30-ish sort of to 60-ish. Um, interestingly, all of them show, once you get beyond about well, one or one and a half degrees, the numbers of people adversely impacted are considerably greater than the numbers of people who, who are better off um, in terms of the flood exposure. Um, and also, of course, the impacts depend on the, the state of the world that exists at the time. 
I've concentrated so far on an A1B world. Um, this is the, that water resource stress figure again, but instead of expressed as a percentage, where sort of 15% of the world's population were adversely impacted, I've expressed it in absolute numbers of people. So a four degree rise in temperature in 2080 would adversely impact upon 15%, which is about a billion people, a billion of the seven billion people around at the time. If we run with different socioeconomic projections, A2 and, and B2, we get very different numbers of people exposed. Uh, the B2 actually is relatively similar. The regional distribution is slightly different, but the global total is pretty much the same. But the A2 world, you get a much bigger absolute impact. So instead of there being a billion people adversely impacted uh, by climate change, they may be of the order of two billion. And for the, those who are aware of um, the meanings of A2 and so on, this is, a, this is not the original A2 with its very, very high population. This is a, a, an adjusted A2 with a more credible population projection. So it's not the extreme one. So the message from this slide is that the actual impacts will depend very much on the population and the economies that are there to be impacted uh, at the end of the century. I've talked about impact. I've talked about these indicators of impact to climate change, you know, numbers of people exposed to increased flood hazard and so on. These aren't measures of actual impact in terms of people being flooded out of their homes or going hungry. They're indicators of exposure to that impact. And the actual impacts will be de dependent on the systems that are in place to cope with, with this exposure. So um, the, the indicator about water resource scarcity was looking at people who are living in watersheds with less than 1,000 cubic metres per person per year. In many parts of the world, that doesn't actually matter that much because there's a structure in place, an infrastructure, a management system that provides water to consumers within that watershed. It, you know, they're, they're not adversely impacted by a lack of water. There's a system in place to, to cope with that. So the numbers don't translate into thirsty or flooded people for that reason, because there are structures in place to cope with the, um, the weather variability. Uh, and also how these systems change and cope with the, the changing climate will influence the extent to which the climate change translates into an impact in terms of more hungry or thirsty or, or flooded people. And that's a function of active capacity uh, and some of the early work that we're doing to try and link the impacts with the vulnerability work within the Quest GSI project tells us that this is not just a function of wealth, so you can't just assume it's a GDP thing. There are lots of things that become important, such as conflict governance, institutional structure, access to capital, and so on. And it gets really quite difficult to try and characterise these and predict how these might change by the end of the century to translate the exposure indicators that we've come up with and map those onto real indicators of impacted people. Okay, so to conclude, what I've done, I hope, is to give a picture of a feasible world in which temperatures are four degrees higher than at present. That world would lead to substantial increases in exposure to impact with very big regional variability in what that exposure is. Now, some of that variability is quite uncertain because it depends exactly on how rainfall change, change occurs. Some of that variability is, is quite consistent between different model projections and so on. So we can be more robust about predictions which I've not made here, in some parts of the world than others. The magnitude of the impact of a four-degree world depends not just on how the climate is changing, but on how the socioeconomic characteristics are changing. And I've ignored here, 
our estimate of them is influenced by how our model, our impacts model work. Uh, an increase in exposure doesn't necessarily mean an increase in impact. And in a sense, the exposure indicator, if you like, is an integration. Uh, I could try one of John's horrible uh, integral equations here. It's integration of um, impacts plus adaptation plus residual uh, exposure. We've got some evidence of non-linear responses in impact terms to the linear climate change that we've assumed. The approach we've used to construct scenarios has been a linear one. We've got some evidence that that does produce some non-linear changes, although there's no clear evidence of a consistent threshold everywhere. We can't say 2 degrees good, 2.1 degrees bad everywhere. It's very regionally variable. Uh, and we haven't, as I say, explored at all the non-linear climate responses to the linear forcings that are, are driving the system, the sort of things that, that, that John was talking about. Thank you. <laughs>